You're listening to the Mind Your Business podcast, episode number 119. Today, I'm talking to 36-year veteran direct response marketer, Brian Kurtz, about how to master your marketing mindset. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm James Wedmore, and I've built a multiple seven-figure internet business that offers the financial freedom to do what I want, when I want. And I'm the first to say that hard work and hustle are not essential ingredients for your success. So how do you build a thriving business from the inside out? Now with over 800,000 downloads, this is the Mind Your Business Podcast. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, James Wedmore here, and this is the Mind Your Business Podcast. What is up? Thank you so much for tuning in to another amazing episode. couple of updates here for you. Number one, we just hit over a million downloads. I, I think I need to in, uh, update my intro. <laughs> until, until then, I'll update you here, and a million thank yous. Seriously, I have to give you a million thank yous for each one of those downloads. I am so incredibly grateful. It's been so amazing and it's just the beginning. So thank you for all of you. I get so many people that I meet in person and online who say they share their favorite episodes with their friends, their community, their Facebook groups, their mastermind partners, and I don't take that lightly. Seriously, we've also had a ton of reviews come in on the show. So if you haven't left us a review on iTunes, look, that really helps, especially subscribing to the podcast. So I would always love if you do that. I want to give a quick shout out to one of our listeners, Joanne, who just left an amazing review calling this her favorite podcast. I love Mondays because you release a new episode. Bonus episodes on Wednesday are great too. I've listened to all of them. I'm super excited for all the guests you have lined up, so keep them coming. Joanne, thank you for the review you can head on over to jameswedmore.com forward slash iTunes and leave a review there. Make sure to subscribe as well. That really helps boost us in the rankings and get new people to discover this message that I want to share with entrepreneurs everywhere. Okay, let's go ahead and get into today's episode, shall we? Today's a little bit different because, you know, something about me I hope my guest doesn't take this the wrong way when he listens to this episode, but I respect my elders. (laughs) My guest today has been in the direct response industry for over 36 years. His level of wisdom, mastery, and experience is unprecedented. And I'm fortunate enough to be in the same mastermind with him. So I get to connect with him every time I see him. And, you know, every time I talk to this gentleman, he just shares pearls of wisdom. And one of the things that I felt was necessary to share with my listeners is something that I think is seriously lacking in the industry. And it causes most people to struggle. And that is the realm of mastery in marketing, in direct response marketing, 
copywriting, influence, and persuasion. And, you know, look, I think some people have hangups around it, but one of the things that my guest says today is that marketing isn't just everything, it's the only thing. And he was able to take a company, Boardroom Inc., from $5 million to $150 million. Now, he didn't do that single-handedly, but he played a huge role in the growth of that company. And so we had a fantastic conversation here together all about the psychology and the art, the science, and the mastery of great marketing, and more specifically, direct response. So it may be a little different than some of the topics that we've had in the past, but it's so important and so relevant. And there's so much wisdom, so much knowledge to be gained from someone who's had this much experience. So without further ado, I am honored to introduce to you my good friend and the guest for today's podcast, Mr. Brian Kurtz. Let's play that episode right now. All right. I am here with Mr. Brian Kurtz. Brian, how's it going? Good, James. How are you? Good. I'm so grateful for you taking the time out of your busy schedule. Well, I don't know. Are you are you a busy guy most days? I, I am busy, but you know, hashtag, you know, free entrepreneur, right? <laughs> yes. But on the other hand, you know, you know, you're like me. I, I know that we're always striving to do more and more. So we don't create busy work, but we're certainly trying to make the biggest impact. So that's a long way of saying, yeah, I'm really busy, but I'm super grateful to be on this podcast for a number of reasons. One is I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge admirer of yours from afar. You know, we, we know each other through a mastermind group that we're in together, mm-hmm. but I've just followed a lot of stuff that you do and just a big, big fan. And also I know that your audience are a lot of up and comers, a lot of, you know, the next generation of great entrepreneurs and great business owners and that's even though I'm, I'm a direct marketer and I'm all really focused on marketing in the groups that I lead and the places where I go, I think we overlap in that we're both committed to just a great next generation of whatever. I mean, in my case, it's the next generation of direct response marketers and copywriters. And in your case, it's entrepreneurs in a variety of categories. So, you know, I think we have a lot more in common and I knew that your audience might be an audience that I could help if we, you know, take this conversation in the directions that we were kind of dreaming about when you invited me. So yeah. I'm grateful to be here as much as if you're happy to have me, that's great, but I'm I'm as grateful to be here. That's that's so great to hear. And yeah, I mean, as I hear you talking, like I feel like we go through our own challenges, our own struggles and our own learning curves. And then we find ways to shortcut that for our students and listeners. I think it just, I love that. yeah, just I love that. it elevate, you know, it's the whole rising tides elevates all ships. I always, I always like yeah. to say though, shortcuts are, it's one of those terms that we always have to be careful of because, yeah. you know, you, you know, you got to do the work, right. But a lot of people have been there before. I mean, one of the things I said to you, I said, is your audience going to like me? Cause I'm so old. I, mean, <laughs> I, I say that I'm not putting myself down. I mean, I think being old is older is great. I'm 59 years old. I've been doing direct marketing for 36 years. I was going to lie and tell you I've been doing it since I was nine, and therefore you wouldn't know I was 59. (laughs) But 
you know, then there's a big difference between 36 years experience and one year's experience for 36 years. Mm. And so, you know, and I know that the key to entrepreneurship, the key to business growth, the key to starting up things, the key to ingenuity is the cumulative knowledge and, you know, building on what you had before. And so in a lot of ways, the shortcut is actually playing the long game. If I, wow, yes. I don't want to mix too many metaphors here, but everything's got to be looked at long term. And I do want to talk a little bit about that because 36 years of, you know, building what I call relationship capital is something I think I could share with your audience that would be valuable to them as well. Man, I, I love this. And I think there's so much that we can dive into. But yeah, it's like, you know, if you haven't forbid like lost it all today or you had to start over, chances are getting back to where you were or further, you'd be there in one one hundredth of the time. Oh, great and, point. And I think that's always our goal as a, a teacher who wants to help and serve others is like, man, it took me, you know, this many years before it finally popped. I want to I want to lessen that time. But yes, it's a big difference between that shorten the learning curve versus taking the quick and easy route. I'll tell you just a real interesting quick story that not getting into my whole history and, you know, we can talk a little bit about what I did in my career working at Boardroom Inc., which was a publishing direct marketing company. But the short version is that I, I, I'm in strategic coach with Dan Sullivan and he's like the best coach in the world for entrepreneurs. And he said something to me when I decided to leave boardroom after being a partner in the business, helping build that business after 35 and a half years. And when I decided to leave, I actually, not getting into any legal discussions or anything, but I, I did leave a lot of money on the table. And I won't get into the details of that. It's, it's irrelevant. But just for the purposes of this story, I could have fought for, you know, a different, I'll call it a different outcome to put more money in my pocket. And what Dan said to me was like, got me so moving on my new career so quickly. And this was only like three years ago. And he said to me, money is about the past, but your capabilities, your resources, your relationships, that's about the future. Hmm. And so when you, you know, you hit me in the head when you said, you know, the idea, if you, if you ever, you lost everything, today, tomorrow, you know, starting over wouldn't be as difficult. And it's because of that accumulated wisdom, accumulated relationships. And it's more than just networking. It's not, you know, it's not having the most Facebook friends, believe me. Right. Um, but it's the cumulative wisdom and the cumulative, what I call the compound interest from relationship capital, which is the best bank account you can have, that will get you back on your feet or start you up on something new immediately. And so, you know, it, it is all about playing a long game. And, you know, you and I both know a lot of online marketers in particular who they play sometimes a little bit of a short game that, yeah. you know, they go for the quick win. They go for the quick hit. They can make a lot of money in a short period of time. But, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't make money. I mean, I love making money. But money is not what buys you happiness. Money buys you freedom. And you, you just said you were surfing for two weeks, right? I mean, yeah. the money buys you the freedom. You know, the money might have bought you you know, a really nice condo to go when you went surfing, like it bought, you know, my hotel accommodations when I went out West. So the money is important, but it's the freedom and yeah, absolutely. it's the freedom that comes with all of that wisdom and intelligence. So again, I'm getting a little woo woo here, but 
he got me going. Well, on you're that. you're in the right yeah, place for that. So don't don't you ever worry or apologize for that, Brian. No, but, but starting over, that was a great point, James. Yeah. It really was. Yeah, that's what you got. That's your asset package. You know what I mean? It's like Jay Abraham, the great you know marketing guru, wrote a book that's my favorite book of his, which is called Getting Everything You Can Out of All You've Got. Hmm. And it's all about assessing what your assets are, and they don't like go away. Like they're not diminishing assets they're expanding assets yeah not always but i every once in a while daydream what it would be like to apply for a job and <laughs> what my resume would look like and like yeah. i'm hoping i'm not trying to be like cocky myself or anything but like i'm hoping a, a company would look at all the skills and all the accomplishments and like want to hire me immediately now i'm probably i probably wouldn't be a very good employee at this point i was gonna say you're probably unemployable <laughs> from what i know about you. <laughs> like i think i would piss off everyone who tried to manage me in the first week but at least on paper it would be like wow right. look at all that stuff and i think that is something that we forget even when we're like in the thick of it and there's that struggle phase of trying to well you're learning like 10 different skills at once and it doesn't feel in the moment like you're making a lot of progress but the money comes and goes and all that stuff, like Brian says, is so true, but we still have those assets and we become the asset that's continually growing in value. So now I have someone on the call with 36 years of that experience and we just get to be really selfish in extracting all that wisdom that Brian has, which I'm really excited to do more of. Yeah, so. Let me tell you something that would be helpful to your guys yeah. too, I think. And it came out of our the mastermind group that we're in together. I did a hot seat at that mastermind and we're in a mastermind group with Jeff Walker, which has, I would you agree? Probably, you know, it's probably close to the 50 best, you know, a lot of within that group are the best online marketers in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, and I'm not one of them. I mean, I'm one of the, I'm a great direct marketer, but I'm not one of the best online guys, you know, although I know all of them and I learn from them and I'm more a student in that group than I am a teacher. And what's interesting is shortly when I got into that group at the beginning, I did a hot seat in front of them. And I was basically talking about the next phase of my career. So this is after 34 years, okay, not 36, but 34, right? And like, what's, you know, what am I going to do when I grow up was kind of the, <laughs> the topic of the hot seat. And, you know, our buddy Stu was saying, yeah, Brian, you should go lie on a beach for two months, you know, and then decide and which was actually very good advice, which I did not take. But the interesting thing about that hot seat that I think I want to share with your audience is that someone said to me in the group, she did not know me that well. She knew of my heritage. She knew that I helped build this, you know, $150 million direct marketing business. And I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that that's what I did. I helped build a company. I got there when it was $5 million and when in the mid-2000s, we were at $160 million. That's amazing. I didn't do that by myself, by all means. But, you know, I was one of the rainmakers for that. And so she knew about that. And what she did, she looked me in the eye during this hot seat and she said, Brian, the starting point for you is that you've got nothing to prove. Now, she wasn't saying that because it was like time to go out to put me out to pasture because that was not my game. I'm not looking to go lie on a beach or play golf all day or whatever. I mean, I do like to umpire baseball and I want to do that as much as possible. But she was so clear about this. You have nothing to prove. And I started thinking about that and I was just coaching somebody. So now I'm bringing it back to your audience. I was just coaching somebody who's got you know, maybe more experience than some people who are listening here today 
but I think she had maybe she's got 10 to 15 years experience, but she's in a CEO position for the first time. And she's speaking in front of my mastermind group. She's a member of my group and she's speaking and she's really nervous. And, you know, I, I want to make sure that I deliver something great. And it was amazing that what came out of my mouth was, you know, I said to her, hey, you know what? You got nothing to prove. So now let's bring it down even further. What about the guy that's listening right now who's doing a startup who came up with this idea because of some skill set or some superpower that they've had in their life and they're 22 or 23 years old or whatever? And I'm not going to say in the same way you have nothing to prove. But if at least you can start there and you're not doing it to prove somebody wrong or to prove somebody that you can do it or you're doing it because it's in your heart and you really want to make the biggest impact, it's a much better place to come from. So I don't know if it applies to everybody who's listening, but, you know, the fact that I was able to take my that someone was able to put me in my place after 34 years telling me I have nothing to prove. Then me telling somebody with 15 years experience that they have nothing to prove. And you know what? I would say that to someone who was doing a startup who is doing a startup because they've proven something in that particular category or, or niche or skill set. So it's a cool place to be coming from, I think. And I don't know if that's helpful or not, but I know it was helpful to her. So I don't know if, it, if I could take it down even further. I know it was game changing for me. Like, to all of a sudden start having this, you know, blank palette hmm. that says, if I don't have to prove anything to anybody, what would I do? Wow. That's huge. Cause I, I look as I'm listening to you, I'm kind of reflecting back on my journey. And when I was just starting out, you have a more of that feeling of there's nothing to prove. It was, it was after having a success or two, and then you want to start on something new or a little different. That's a little outside your comfort zone, a little bit more challenging where I really felt that pressure, like, oh man, people have a certain expectation and perception mm -hmm. of me. I don't want to let them down. I don't want them, you know, to judge me, blah, blah, blah. Man. How many well, years have you been doing this? It'll be my 10th year in November. That's incredible. I, I know. Mean, I, I always like to say this, but if, if I was as smart as you after doing what I did for 10, I mean, the sky's the limit, but I don't see you going at it at all about. I got to prove anything I got, but you know, you're all about impact from what I could tell. I appreciate that. I think there's a part of me that really wants to prove stuff to myself. Yeah, there and, you go. You know, and like, what else am I capable of and what else can I do? And I was just thinking about this this morning, how much I get excited about just like my own, not just my own, but starting first my own potential and like kind of discovering that there's, you know, you talk about superpowers and our strengths and stuff and, you know, starting to question, like, do, have we tapped into our full potential? Is there more that I could be doing? And, and then of course, once I get excited about that, I start talking to my students about that, about like, you know, are we really living up to our full potential? Not to shame someone that you're not, you're not doing enough. Like, I don't want to come from that place, but like, yeah, you know what the, you know what the key is, I think on that, James, that would be really helpful. Never, anytime you say the word should, in the context of what you're talking about right now, yeah, that's where you got to like stop yourself and say, no, 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 no. It's not a should. Is this what I really want to do? Is I mean, you can start rephrasing it because yeah. it becomes a should. Then all bets are off on like why you're doing it and how happy you're going to be doing it. And 
Totally. Um, yeah. You, you I, hit on something I, really important. No, I love that. So I'm kind of playing around with this idea, and I wrote it on my whiteboard that if I look at my business and the areas I've had to master, I kind of look at three areas. I just love your opinion on this because I've just kind of been toying around with this. Is First, you have to develop your area of your expertise. So like if you are a plumber, you got to get really good at plumbing. Um, you know, you got to know right, how to do, right. the, do the job. And then you got to get really good at marketing. I think that's the first level. You know, I've read E-Myth Revisited several times and, you know, he just, Michael Gerber creates that important distinction between learning the craft versus how to run a business. And I think business and marketing is, can all be lumped into that. I've really been scratching my head around this third area, which I think is the only way I know how to label it right now is like master yourself, anything from commitment to discipline to being able to learn and take action on something. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? On 36 years, like where as entrepreneurs, do we, do we need to be spending our time? Yeah. So I wrote it down cause I, I'm, I'm going to think about this a lot, but let me, uh, let me give you some, you know, things that I talk about with my, I call them my students or my mastermind members or the people I blog to or my consulting clients. So expertise, nothing, you know, it's the, it's the, you know, Malcolm Gladwell has it right. 10,000 hours. I mean, whether it's 8,400 hours or 12,600 hours, whatever, you know, to be good at something or to really master it, you know, and you're going to be half-assed at it, screw that, right? Yeah. So there's no replacing hard work. So expertise, and you got to be playing the long game, as I mentioned before. You got to, you know, you're not rushing it. It's exponential knowledge. It's wisdom. It's, you know, being a mentor and having mentors. And I can talk about that too. But expertise is so critical. But your number two, marketing, and now, you know, you're getting into my sweet spot here. Yeah. And, you know, I've written on numerous occasions. And in fact, I think my favorite speech, one of my favorite speeches I ever gave, I gave for our buddy Attila, who's in our Platinum Plus group with Jeff Walker. And he's like the number one entrepreneur, trainer, and marketing guy in Hungary. Mm-hmm. Now, when I say Hungarian entrepreneur, what do you, you don't think of that that actually exists, right? <laughs> I mean, you got a you got a country that was communist until 1989, and teaching them entrepreneurship or marketing, you would say, "Wow, I don't want to do that," right? Yeah. But here's the thing: this title of my speech to them, because it was kind of a marketing thing, my speech was, "Marketing isn't everything; it's the only thing," mm. and so. To teach people, like, and I just had dinner this last weekend with a bunch of couples, one of whom is a lawyer, trying to make the case, you know, of all the, you know, how bad marketing is and this and that. And I'm like, I don't even want to get into this discussion because you don't even have clients if it wasn't for marketing. And frankly, I'll guarantee that your law firm has not studied under Dan Kennedy and they have not studied service businesses and how you can beat the crap out of your competition in a service business. And that lawyering is not a commodity. Lawyering can be a specialty if you market it properly. And so here's a guy that thinks marketing's evil. And meanwhile, you know, he's been able to provide for his family because his firm has done just enough marketing to get him just enough clients. Yeah. And so imagine if he actually focused on it and actually took it seriously. And so I try, you know, but I'm not going to preach to the people who will never be converted. But if I start when I was speaking to the Hungarians, 
it was marketing is not everything. It's the only thing. And then I make the case that marketing is not evil. And, you know, you and I don't have to make that case to the tribes that we hang out in. Right. I mean, they don't. We all know that marketing, you know, if you've got a mission or a vision you want to share with the world, you know, it's it, it, they're not coming to your door. You know, it's not if you build it, they will come, which is, you know, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. And the best marketers we know, it's not about having a website and hope people come. It's doing launches and it's being proactive and it's delivering incredible value and content for free before you sell anybody anything. And it's a long game. That's marketing, too. And so then I start differentiating between selling and marketing. And mm. so that's in, it's so critical. You're never going to. I mean, I said to the Hungarians, I asked them. So I asked them three questions. I said, first question was, how many of you have a mission or a vision you want to share with the world in a big way? So not all of them raised their hand, but the yeah. Hungarians are a little shy. <laughs> and I said, I said, well, everybody should be raising their hand. You're at a Tillis conference about marketing. What's the deal? So then the second question was, how many of you would never raise your hand at any public event that you ever attend ever? <laughs> so now they're sheepishly, you know, all raising their hands. And then the third question was, how many of you, if you have, assuming you have a mission or vision, and I didn't force you into it, how many of you would rather reach millions of people with it than dozens of people with it? And to start at that base level, like least common denominator, was important. And it was really educational for me as someone who's done direct marketing at a very high level, I mean, you know, in our heyday at my company boardroom, you know, we were doing $150 million a year in direct mail. I mean, I've mailed over a billion pieces of direct mail in my career. Again, not bragging. It's not bragging if you did it, right? Right. But I did that. And I did, you know, we sent out, you know, tens of millions of e-newsletters and we sent out, you know, we did newspaper ads and I mean, I did billions of promotions in my career, and I'm proud of what I did. And so, again, that's your number two. So you got me started, but I'm not going to get granular on the marketing side. But marketing is probably number one. But, yes, the expertise is important because if you're not going to market in a niche and go a mile deep as opposed to a mile wide, you're probably going to end up getting lost in a commoditized world with whatever you're starting up as opposed to kind of owning a niche. I always say it's better to own a niche than own the world. And mm. so, you know, I wrote a blog post a couple of weeks ago called The Horizontal Vertical. And you find that when you find a niche that you can own, that vertical, which would be the niche, becomes more horizontal to you because you own it and you can charge a lot more money and you can make a lot more impact. Third thing about the master yourself, I was just yeah. on a call with a guy who is a professional interviewer I guess in some ways you are too, James, but you know, he <laughs> has a podcast. He interviews like entrepreneurs every week. He does three to five every single week and he's done wow. over 500 of them. And it, we were doing Skype video and he's kind of like, look me in the eye, like, like was looking right through me. And he goes, mm. Brian, what's the most important question you need to ask yourself? So like I'm, I was caught off guard and I said, it must be the big why. And he goes, well, yeah, I mean, Simon Sinek had it right. You know, the big why is very important. Like, why do I, why do, I do what I do and all that? He goes, I think that's number two. I said, and then he, like, he's grilling me. It's like, Brian, what do you think number one is? What do you think number one is? And he said, from his perspective, and I thought this was pretty insightful, and it's, I think it ties into what you said when you called it mastering yourself. He said, what's the big who? Gosh, what's the I big who? That. 
Yeah. So meaning like what, who are you? Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm now I'll date myself, but you know, of course the who had the great song, but on CSI was the theme song. Who are yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but you gotta have the, you know, yeah, I was nine when I went to my first who concert. Um, <laughs> but you know, what's the big who before the big why? Very interesting, right? Because yes. now you have to really know yourself and know what you can do. I mean, in that blog post about the horizontal vertical, I talked about someone who was launching a new product and it was for men in midlife crisis. And of course, you know, I didn't want to be an asshole and say, you know, can you get a little more broad? But what I did ask him was, you know, what qualifies you to do that? And then he started telling me his journey, which was actually pretty qualifying. You know, he had gone through a nervous breakdown. He had gotten divorced. He almost committed suicide. I mean, it was a tough story. And he came out the other end better. And that would qualify him to teach all men in midlife crisis. And I said, well, I, I didn't want to be obnoxious, but I said, you know, that's everybody. Why do you want to start with everybody? You won't be able to narrow down your marketing message. So this is about it ties into what you have on your board there, James, because it's master yourself and then you do the marketing and the expertise. So then I said, what were you doing for a living when you had the nervous breakdown? And he said he was a lawyer. Hmm. So then I felt like we were onto something because then I said, well, how about you start with recovering attorneys? Like, why don't you start with lawyers in midlife crisis and own that, own that. Even yeah. though I'm sure what you're going to teach the lawyers is what you could teach the architects in midlife crisis, what you could teach the Internet marketer or direct marketer in midlife crisis or what you could teach the dentist in a midlife crisis. But think about the messaging that you can do because you know your who you've mastered lawyering or at least, you know, the legal profession. And now you can talk with language and terms to a specific audience. And then that's marketing, right? Because the marketing messages are going to be so targeted that they're going to be way more powerful. They're going to feel totally personalized to that audience. And you're going to own that niche. Then you become this leader in a niche instead of trying to like lead all of mankind. I tell that story and I think, so I think your three things are like, Right on the money. Well, right I, pr money. I appreciate that. But this this is so huge and there's so many things I want to unpack. First of all, let's just talk about the niching down because I think that's brilliant. And, you know, it's not common sense. And I can imagine, I, I do want to dip our toes a little bit into your direct marketing experience in a bit because I can start to imagine, at least in my personal experience, the type of marketing that we do, it's not common sense. Like to tell someone like that, I'm sure his first answer, unless he really, really, really trusted you and was 100% coachable, was like, no, 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 I don't want to limit myself to just lawyers. Like I'm leaving so much money on the plate. Like there was something like that. You you hit it. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And and you know you just look at like you look at Shark Tank and infomercials, and they create and Billy Mays type products, right? Like they create every man, every woman products, like the product that is universal, the whole world would want to buy. And so you see a lot of that, you know, and I, I always get fascinated. Well, with it's funny. I just want to I'll yeah. interrupt you for a second that you said Shark Tank. How many times does a guy get up in front of the sharks and say, this is a $15 billion business? <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, the next line is Mark Cuban says, oh, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Like, I don't give a shit 
that you're going to try to get some piece of a $15 billion business because that doesn't speak to what you talked about in terms of expertise and mastering yourself. It has to do with, oh, there's a big market there, so I'm sure I can get some buyers. Right. And they're seeing that the whole market versus going in and niching down. And I tell people it's got to feel a little uncomfortable. It has to feel a little awkward when you're like, okay, you're going to talk about this, but just for attorneys and just men attorneys, like that is getting uncomfortably. And I could even go further. It might even be if he was a bankruptcy attorney, I'd start with even bankruptcy attorney. You know what I mean? Yep, exactly. And and we have a buddy in in our plat group, Susan Garrett, who's the, you know, is a dog trainer, Mm -hmm. but she got into dog agility. And I remember she did a presentation at LaunchCon last year, and she did this whole exercise of niche, of a niche, of a niche, of a niche. And, you know, when you get to the point, have somebody, hopefully all the people listening here have people around them all the time to, like, push them. Like, you're kind of doing, I can see you're probably coaching your students on this all the time and pushing them to go even further. Oh, that's how deep you're going with your niche? How much deeper can you go? (laughs) Yep. Yep. So she went down from like dog training to like a specific segment of dog training that was like dog agility. And then there was this like area within that that she focused on. Yeah. I mean, she did the dog agility eventually because she went back broader again. Yeah. But I think her first thing was like a subgroup of dog agility, like just doing I'm making this up, but it it might have been just doing competitions or something like that. Yeah, you know what I mean? but then it was like one specific piece of competitions, right. like how to run pace with the dog. Like that was the whole thing. That's right. And meanwhile, she could have, I'm sure, you know, just done a broad product on how to get your dog to come. Now she does do that now. She has mm-hmm. a thing called recallers. Yeah. But that's the other thing. That's about patient marketing. P a t i e n t. You really got to be, you know, patient. The idea I always the visual I always use when I do speeches on this is I have a picture of a funnel and it's upside down. So the bottom of the funnel is the skinny part and then the top is the wide part. And I really want people to understand that, you know, owning the niche going wide is just you own the small thing to get to the big thing. And you may never get to the big thing, but you may never want to go to the big thing when you own the small one because the small one becomes big enough or that's the horizontal vertical the small thing becomes just so, so powerful. And I tell you, I do this with copywriters. Like I've worked with the best copywriters in the world over my career. I'm not a copywriter, but I like writing and I have a pretty good copy sense. And I do work on headlines and stuff like that with my clients and my mastermind group. And I have a lot of copywriters in my mastermind groups. And the thing about copywriters, it's even more you know, important to like own a niche. And that goes back to your points about expertise and mastering yourself. And so almost every great copywriter I ever met dominated some sub niche first. Like mm. they dominated some, like one guy, you know, dominated a particular category in health supplements. And it was a specific, maybe it was probiotic or maybe it was prostate, I forget. And then, you know, if I fast forward his career, he now can write for any supplements. He can write for health newsletters. He now can write for financial newsletters. But wow. it's because he took that deep dive early on. And I think that's the curiosity factor. That's the 10,000 hours piece. And then once you've been through that, 
it's sort of like the musicians on Broadway. You know, the best musicians on Broadway are what they call the doublers, right? Or the tripler, the people who can, they don't want, that pit is really small under the stage at a Broadway theater in New York. Mm -hmm. So if you can play the trumpet and the clarinet, you know, a woodwind and a brass, you become way more valuable. Wow. But don't you think that they mastered one first? They didn't try to do them all at the same time. Yeah. I, I'm not saying I know that for a fact, but I'm going to bet that they did it that way, that they became the best. They might have been the best piano player first, you know, to really learn music. It's like my daughter's a dancer and, mm. you know, she's uh, going to be a dance professor in college. And, you know, she had to master ballet before and do the deep dive there. And that's an easy one because ballet, you know, all other, you know, jazz and lyrical and even hip hop, a lot of things work off the fundamentals of ballet in marketing. <laughs> you know, the fundamentals I learned in direct mail and copy all apply to the Internet. But the deep dive is the piece here that I think people miss. And I think it's one of the biggest mistakes young entrepreneurs make that they try to own the world and they don't want to they're impatient to just go on the niche first. Oh, it's so true too. We even say things like world domination. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, what about like niche domination or, yeah, you know, yeah. mastery of one thing. Totally. I think that's, look, guys, listeners, this is so valuable coming from someone who has so much experience. I've seen it in myself. Like you just kind of like, I think entrepreneurs, the downfall of the entrepreneur is they're so excited by the new they're so excited by the potential and, and yes. mastery is not sexy. Mastery is not fun. It does take discipline. It takes doing something over and over again. I, I like to challenge myself with new things right now. I'm learning how to play the ukulele and it's That's so cool. Yeah. I I, we picked up a, a new in Hawaii. We were there about a month ago and at the end of the day, even though it's a lot easier than the guitar and I already know the guitar, so it's easy to pick up. I'm still spending hours looking at music tabs and playing one note at a time over and over and over again to get the song. And it's like, that's not fun. It's, it's when you can actually like go to your wife and be like, Hey, Chelsea, check out, check out what I just learned and see the look on her face when you do it. It makes it all worth it. But that discipline definitely has to be there. Now, Brian, I want to pull back to something else you said earlier when we were talking about that number one question, because man, I couldn't agree more like the, who am I? Yeah, I just got that this afternoon. It's so funny. You know, it was really funny. Well, I had a good friend of mine on the podcast recently. His name's Jim Fortin and he's a sales professional. He's a NLP master practitioner. He helps people with like performance and stuff. And he really leads a lot with that question. And so one question he has, and I'm going to see if we can try it on with you if you'll allow us. So he asks this question, who am I? the person that created this. And so, and I just like love that. Like when you're looking at where you're at in your life, instead of just saying, well, you know, I, cause I could sit here for an hour and go, Brian, what'd you do? What are your steps? What's the secret? Right. Or I could get much more concerned about like, who were you that created 34 years of experience of having an impact on taking a company from 5 million to 160 million and mastering direct marketing. So what comes to mind, just out of curiosity, when I ask you that question, who were you the person that created those results? Yeah, that's a great one. Wow, that is awesome. I love that. Putting you on the spot um, a bit. <laughs> yeah. 
so two things popped into my head. The first one was sort of the gut one, which was curiosity. Hmm. You know, I was more than just a curious guy. I was I was sort of obsessed, you know. I mean, for a guy like me, you know, I mean, we, we all love Google, but, you know, Google for me is like so freaking awesome, you know, because of my thirst for knowledge. I mean, I think so. I, that was my first thought. But I think who I am and why I was able to do what I was I was able to do and why I still hope to do great things in the future is something that happened to me when I took uh, Landmark Forum. I don't know if people here are familiar with Landmark Forum, but Landmark Forum is a self-help program. It's the reincarnation of S, if people remember S way back. And they have a thing called the Landmark Forum, and it's three days, and you're with 150 people, and you share, and you do stuff. And, you know, it's, it's a little woo-woo, but, you know, it's a pretty good program. And then they have an advanced course. And the advanced course, after you take the three-day forum, is a four-day course, half the size, 75 people. And at the advanced course, you really start drilling down into who you are, basically. And so what they do, the exercise, and this is what popped into my head when you said, who are you kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The first day, so you're there on a Thursday night, and you get in front of the 75 people, and you kind of say who you are. You say, you know, I'm Brian Kurtz, and you know, I'm X, I'm blank. And so what came out of my mouth, and I hadn't thought about it, I hadn't prepared, because you weren't supposed to prepare. I said, I'm Brian Kurtz, and I um, know everyone and do the right thing. That's who I was. I know everyone and, and I so do the, I know everyone. know everyone and do the right thing. Mm -hmm. So, which sounds like, you know, glad hander and safety and like everything that would be sort of anti-entrepreneurial, and kind of, you know, not smarmy, but, you know, use people. I mean, there's something in know everyone and do the right thing that just doesn't resonate as anything wonderful or great. And then what you do is you go through the four days of Landmark Forum. And then on the fourth night, on Sunday night, you don't write any, you haven't written anything down. You don't rehearse anything. And you get in front of the room. Every person has to go up. And you declare your possibility and you say, I am the possibility of blank. And you're not supposed to think about it. And basically, you're supposed to like look into the audience and let the audience's eyes. And you've been with these people, these 75 people in an intimate surrounding for four days. So the beauty of the exercise is that the group is telling you what your possibility is through their eyes and their expressions. Wow. If, you, if you're insincere about it or you've rehearsed it, they actually they will not accept it. And then you got to go back off the stage and come back when you're ready again. And I passed the first time, but I didn't know what I was going to say. <laughs> and I got in front of the group and I said, I am the I'm Brian Kurtz and I'm the possibility of contribution. That's the word that came into my mm -hmm. mind. And ever since then, and then, you know, I've added connection to it as opposed to know everybody. Connection to me is not networking. Again, it's not the most Facebook likes. It's not the most LinkedIn contacts, but it's really deep relationships. So when I've been honored, I've been fortunate to be honored, you know, with different awards in the direct marketing industry. And in one of them, they said, you know, Brian Kurtz, a lifetime of contribution and connection. That's and awesome. so I can't go anywhere. You know, I mean, that's where I go for. I, I went to the other thing first about curiosity, but I do think that it's contribution and connection 
if I'm always in a mindset of contribution and connection and not just connection for the sake of having another contact in my address book, that's how I'm going to be able to do what I'm going to do. That's how I'm going to be able to share at the highest level and make the biggest impact. Or at least that's the theory. Now, am I that 100% of the time every single day? Hell no. Yeah. But that's what brings me back to reality. That's what brings me back to, I guess, my who. I don't even yeah. know if I answered yeah. your question. You absolutely, you absolutely did. But I think that does bring you back to your who. And then perhaps a why can come from that. I just really like that. Like maybe that is the paramount question is who am I? And I think even though you feel like the answer may have come from the audience, like I still believe ultimately that's up to you who you choose to. Yes to be in every moment. Uh, how long ago did you do Landmark, if you don't mind my asking? Oh, gosh. When did I do Landmark? I'm thinking it was... Had to be late 90s, maybe? Mm-hmm. You liked it, yeah? yeah? I did. I did. I don't know what I, if I'd like it if I went back now. <laughs> but, I mean, did you take it? I did. I took it about three or four years ago now. Oh, yeah. So how is it now? I don't even know. I've, d- I've done the advanced as well, and it was a little different. and uh, Like, it sounds a little different than... Oh, so they didn't do that exercise? They didn't do that, but the same statement of like, you know, I'm the possibility of was there, but it it wasn't like a stand up and kind of declared or anything like that didn't happen. That was like quite a moment in my life. I got to tell you. (sighs) That's awesome. Yeah. I just remember the first, within the first like hour, the forum leader said, for most of you, if not all of you, this will be the three most impactful days of your life. And I was just like, BS, you don't know me. (laughs) <laughs> don't tell, don't tell me like what's going to be meaningful in my life or whatever. And there was a lot of accuracy in that statement <laughs> looking That's back. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously there's, I've heard a lot of unfortunately negative negativity around landmark and stuff like that from, you know, aggressive sales tactics and stuff like that. And people think it's a cult and, and whatnot. Yeah, but, that's yeah. So, so, so much of that is, you know, people, but people think Tony cool. Robbins is a cult leader. So, it, you know, it's, that's right. That's know. right. But man, I, I've found so much value just out of that. And a lot of it, like I came there for business and a lot of it, like what I got out was for the rest of other areas of my life. And that's, I think something to always keep in mind is I really attempt today to take a holistic view at my life that I'm not just trying to get better at being a business owner and entrepreneur, but you know, your whole life as it is from relationships to health and, you know, spirituality and stuff. So yeah, fascinating stuff. Hey, let me ask you, you've already kind of started to talk about this. Like what I'm really fascinated is I'm listening to you talk, like you have a mastery of direct marketing and we've already kind of started to talk about what the biggest mistakes are that you see entrepreneurs make. I have a really strong inkling that most entrepreneurs, even in the first few years of business, like there's this stat, I think it was like put out by Forbes magazine, eight out of 10 businesses fail in the first 18 months, eight out of 10. Like that's, I believe that. Yeah. I believe that most people don't even know what direct marketing is. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So yeah, because a lot now a lot of people equate direct marketing with direct mail. Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. it, It has nothing to do with that. In fact, the internet is the ultimate direct marketing medium. Yeah. Direct marketing, and that's why I love the internet, and I love email marketing, and I love affiliate marketing, and I love everything. I love Facebook when it's done right. I love display. I love I love anything. But it's got to be measurable. Mm-hmm. It's got to be accountable. 
it's got to be able to say, I spent this for an ad and I got this back. And even if I didn't make my money back, I know I'm going to make a certain amount in lifetime on that customer. And therefore, the media paid out and I could buy more media. And so one of the great lines, I got to get the exact line because I try to quote it a lot and I kind of mangle it, but I'll get, you'll get the idea. Mm-hmm. One of the great online guys, Rich Sheffrin, who's a friend of mine and wrote a manifesto many years ago about marketing. He's a student of Jay Abraham's. He's coming to my mastermind group as a guest because he's, he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. And he made a comment that was just so great. And he was kind of referring to the online marketing world and affiliate marketing and that, you know, for a lot of online marketers, affiliate marketing is it, right? I mean, why should I pay for a list when someone else can mail for me and I'll just give them, you know, 50% of the revenue and I never have to pay for a list or, yeah. or, or an audience and they'll endorse it and I'm a pig and sh- And so I think that is just a terrible fallacy, not that affiliate marketing is bad and not that it shouldn't be part of your mix if that works for you. But to think about that as the only way to sell is nuts. So I always talk about, you know, my whole heritage is not just direct marketing. So the marketing has got to be accountable, measurable. It's got to have an ROI. It's got to have a return that you know, is acceptable or I'm not going to do that again. And you've got to be diversified. You want to have multi-channel. You want to have direct mail if it's applicable. You want to have space advertising if it's applicable. You want to do, you know, email if it's applicable. You want to do display if it's applicable. You want to do Facebook. You don't, you know, Bill Birnbach, the great advertising man, used to say, one of his great quotes is, you know, you don't adapt your technique to the idea. You adapt your idea to the technique. You don't say, man, that Facebook is huge. I got to get on it. You say, I got a great product. This is my audience. This is my demographic. This is my avatar. This is who I want to reach. What do you think the best medium is? And then you decide which it is. And any of those should be direct marketing. They should, any of those should be, you know, direct response. So, you know, when I, I kind of lost my, I, I went off on a tangent, which I tend to do and then I lose <laughs> no, where I was going to go originally. That's good. But I was, I think that understanding that all of your, oh, I know what I wanted to say. So Rich Sheffrin. So yeah. Rich Sheffrin's quote, which is just so incredible, is something like, you know, you've arrived as a company or as a marketer when you can actually pay for your media, whatever it is, a direct mail list, an email list, a space ad, a Facebook ad. And it pays out in some way by the, whatever metric you decide, it pays out. Now you're in the ball game called being like a real business, being like a, I'm paraphrasing a bit. And this is the way I would say it because I agree with it wholeheartedly. That's not to say that doing an affiliate is a bad thing and it should be part of your mix. But to rely on someone else's list or rely on someone else to always market for you or to rely on someone else's media or platform completely, 100%, is not really building a business. You're, you know, you're built on sand. Mm-hmm. And so it's the diversification. And this is what direct marketing means to me. Direct marketing, you know, no direct marketing business can succeed without repeat business. And you'd say that's a big duh, right? <laughs> Any online person talks about funnels and back ends and all the stuff that we live and breathe every single day online today. But that wasn't all invented by some internet marketer. 
Yeah. You know, those fundamentals and the book that I've already written, The Advertising Solution with Craig Simpson, talks about six legendary advertising men who are actually the forerunners of direct marketing. David Ogilvy, John Caples, Robert Collier, Claude Hopkins, Gene Schwartz, and Gary Halbert. Those six guys Legends. were like Legends. They were like advertisers, general advertisers. They were direct marketers trapped in general advertiser bodies. Like they were yearning to be free of brand advertising and advertising that doesn't pay out for advertising that does pay out. I mean, you know, Claude Hopkins wrote a book called Scientific Advertising in 1923. Mm -hmm. There was no science in advertising in 1923. There were no spreadsheets or Excel. There certainly was, it wasn't even like the sophisticated direct mail that we have today. And yet he understood that if I'm going to pay for this advertisement, both creative and list and paper and printing or whatever, it better pay out. See, I don't, so, I don't think yeah. people are, most people are doing that today. I think they're, no, they're and I'll give you the opposite of what they're not doing too. And I, I yeah. found this out from a few people that there were people who were, when, when Facebook started making, you know, advertising available, mm -hmm. basically there were people that said, Oh, I'm going to do, Oh, I only have to pay like 300 bucks for this ad and I can do this and that. And I'm going to, but I, I can't sell like a $10 product because I won't sell enough to get my $300 back. And it was only the guys who understood direct marketing, even if they didn't know it was understanding direct marketing, that the $10 product became the welcome mat or the lead generator that led to the $99 product, which led to the membership program, which led to the $15,000 mastermind. And if you trace that back to the original source, which is what you do in direct marketing, that original Facebook ad was not $10 an order. The average was $78 an order. Mm-hmm. And when it was $78 an order, you paid for your media two times over and you could start rolling out to that media with confidence because you knew you had a lifetime value that you could bank on. That's direct marketing. Things like lifetime value. It reminds me, I'll, I'll keep anonymity here, but of the special surprise guest we had at our mastermind back in Durango talking about how they're, what, three to six months before they, they'll even... Have, paying for their media before they'll actually see an ROI. That's it's, right. Well, that's what that person is someone who comes from my world. Yeah. His company does. Anyway, the company, in fact, I brought him to the group and he's in my mastermind group and he comes from a company that was one of the competitors, friendly competitors of my company, Boardroom. And we actually got to a point where we had so much cash in the bank that we would actually do subscription promotions and we would not, we would actually not break even for two years on a new subscriber. See, that's, that's amazing. Was, my wife is, the, she was for the, the CFO, like acting CFO for a while. She came into the business. She started seeing my Facebook ad bills, like 20, 30,000 a month. And she right. was freaking out. And I, I would show her like the direct profit. And now we're starting this conversation of like, Hey, you know, if we could really know our numbers, we don't even need to break even right off the gate. You know, no, right off the no. bat. lifetime value is one of the most important concepts yeah. in, you know, indirect marketing. The other one is RFM. I went to a conference of copywriters that should really know what RFM is. And out of 500 people in the audience, only like six raised their hand. So I'll, then I'll assume that some people never raise their hand at conferences. So <laughs> let's say maybe 30 people. But yeah. to not understand RFM, which stands for recency, frequency, monetary, is 
something that would apply to anything and everything that you do online. And RFM simply says that, you know, a recent buyer is going to be more valuable than someone who's not recent. So someone who bought from you a month ago is more valuable than someone who bought from you three months or six months or a year. Frequency is a indicator of much higher value to you. Someone who bought twice in the last six months versus once, easy there. And then total dollars spent is monetary. You put those three things together, that was the origin. I don't want to get too granular here, but that is the origin of what we call regression modeling in direct marketing, in direct mail. Companies like Reader's Digest, which was the number one marketer in the 1960s, built their whole business on that, that they knew that they could take a, a list in direct mail of tens of millions of names and segment it through statistical modeling based on mostly on recency frequency monetary and actually predict in 5% increments what the response rate was going to be and how deep they should go into their list. Wow. Those concepts can all apply in different ways. I always say that the, you know, I had a 9 million name database at Boardroom. But what I do with my list of 7,000 or the list of 50 people in my mastermind, it's the same principle. You segment, you deep dive, you treat your VIPs like VIPs, you treat your suspects like suspects until they're prospects, but you <laughs> care and feed them and find out if they can become prospects. And then you treat your prospects like gold until they become customers. You treat your customers with even more respect and bonus and everything that you want to give them. I mean, these are principles that stand the test of time. And, you know, all of them apply. And they're all were based in all the education that I got in traditional direct marketing, which did start in direct mail for me. I have to say that, you know, I cut my teeth. I always say I have an expression. I said paying postage made me a better marketer <laughs> because I had to lick a lot of stamps and pay a lot of postage and printing. And I wasn't going to waste anything or at least as, there are a lot of online marketers that could throw a lot of stuff up against the wall and it's not costing them a lot of money, but it is costing them. If they throw crap up against the wall, meaning against their list, yeah. even though it might not be costing them in dollars, it's going to cost them in reputation. Well, that's what you were talking about at the beginning of the episode about the short game and the quick wins. Yes. Like we don't, sure, that could maybe make you a quick win, a quick buck, but we're not looking at the opportunity cost. You know, your reputation's at stake. Okay, so this is this is great. I, I think most people are not running from a direct marketing mindset, which I think the most simplest definition that I heard Brian say was, it's just, we're marketing, we're all putting stuff out there on social media, we're doing our stuff, but are we making it measurable? Are we making it accountable? And is there an ROI? And man, and then bringing in this RFM, which I hadn't heard of that, you know, unofficially yeah, you practice it you, you practice, it practice it unconsciously and some you know not as intentionally as you could be but the recency the frequency and the monetary this is huge and i just think most entrepreneurs aren't doing this we're not trained to do this so how would you know to do this are there other mistakes you know what knowing it is interesting because like it's not just going taking a stroll down memory lane yeah it's actually i have a chapter in my new book and it's called the importance of original source and i talked mm. about this with perry marshall who's one of the great marketers around and think about it, James. Now that you understand it, where it came from, it could lead to some different types of questioning, even on a sophisticated marketer like you are. You might go down a different 
path when you start putting together recency frequency monetary, although you're kind of doing it already, but you might be more intentional about it, which could lead to better results theoretically. Totally. And I think with the technology we have today, like CRM platforms like Infusionsoft, it is so easy to actually automate all that, to set up certain triggers and campaigns where if someone purchases a certain monetary number, if it hits a certain number or a certain recency or frequency, that it can actually trigger an action, any type of action, a new campaign, maybe where you schedule a call with them. I mean, like when you start, I feel like when you start looking at your business through this lens, it will just open up way more possibilities, way more opportunity. Are there any other mistakes you feel like entrepreneurs are making or not? You know, one of the big ones that I just wrote about, I called it the article, the blog post I wrote was who is your rainmaker? And I kind of, you know, this comes from interviewing, you know, dozens of entrepreneurs for seats in my mastermind group. It was working with, you know, my mentor, Marty Edelston, who founded Boardroom and took me under his wing. And then all the entrepreneurs that I meet, you know, in the groups that you and I, the kind of groups that you and I are in. And what I talked about in this blog post, who is your rainmaker, is I said there are three things when I ask entrepreneurs, like what do they think is holding back their growth the most? Mm. And most of everything that they said was under these under three things. One was what I'll call too many ideas. That the average entrepreneur is, you know, probably a Colby 10, you know, or nine, which means they're a quick start. That every idea is, there's no bad ideas. You know, everything is kind of like, you know, you know, er, there's no idea they don't like. Everything looks like, everything looks the same. They think everything could be big. And so they get lost in too many ideas. And then the frustration sets in when, they can't focus or they don't have the resources to do everything, the shiny objects become a hindrance. You know, I wrote in this piece about Ned Hallowell, who's the number one expert on ADHD in the world, basically says there'd be no entrepreneurs without ADHD. (laughs) So it's not an affliction, but it can get in the way if you don't get it under control. So the too many ideas and not having a system in place to knock out the bad ones and only focus on the ones you can get done with existing resources and capability is one of the biggest traps. Before you go to number two, you know who I think is, because I think that's challenging for most people, myself included, you know who I think is really good at that, at least from my own outside observer, is Jeff Walker himself. He is. I'm amazed at how much opportunity must cross uh, his path like every moment of every day. And he is very number two is how I think he he succeeds, because number two, in my opinion, is being surrounded by people who tell you the truth Mm. and be able to hear them. So it's a tough one because you got to have people who if you're not going to trust the people in your organization, you better be in mastermind groups where people tell you bad idea. Don't do it. You know, sitting on hot seats, what to say no to. And Jeff is one of those guys that's super open-minded and he knows who to go to for advice so he can see what he might want to say no to. Yeah. And that is critical. And then also to be able to hear it because most entrepreneurs, here's the trap. The trap is if you're an entrepreneur and you've had some success, who started the party? You did. 
Mm. No one else started that party, right? You're the one that had the big idea to start the party. So why should I trust anybody else to have as good an idea as I have? Right. And you got to get past that. If you don't get past that, your odds of exponential growth are a lot harder. Now, there are exceptions. I mean, you know, you've got amazing entrepreneurs that don't need ideas from anybody else. And I mean, I don't know how, you know, you know, how the great entrepreneurs and thinkers, you know, how does Elon Musk work? And, you know, how do people work? And how do they accept ideas or not accept ideas? How do they trust other people when they've had such amazing success with their own ideas? But that is one of the keys. So that's number two. Number two is making sure that you can hear the truth, that you get the truth, that you don't have a bunch of yes men around you. You know, I don't know. I mean, but sometimes I mean, Steve Jobs could be an exception to that. I don't know. (laughs) So then the third thing is what I call if you can get the second rainmaker. And what I mean by that is once you establish the fact that you have too many ideas and you can't get them all done and I got to figure out a system to do that that I get the proper feedback of what to work on, what not to work on, who's going to help me decide that, what's my criteria for it, what are my non-starters. Jeff's really big on that. Like that's got a non-starter in it. It's got something that's going to take away from me being on the slopes X amount of days a year skiing, so that's not going to be something I'm going to work on. You know, there are non-negotiables, so that's number two. And then the third is can you trust somebody to be your number two? And so – I say this now on both sides. This is like my whole journey from entrepreneur to entrepreneur. Marty, my mentor, had to eventually trust me after 10 years to say, hey, Brian has got really good ideas. I'm still going to be in charge, but I'm going to start giving him a lot more freedom to be a rainmaker on his own, like a second rainmaker. Now, all of a sudden, the pressure is off Marty to think of all the ideas. And then, you know, if I guess if there was a tie, you know, in the early days, Marty would choose his over mine, of course. But I think that having the open mindedness to have somebody that you could start trusting. And frankly, it led to some great stuff because I had to have a lot of failures. I had to screw up a lot. But in the mid 2000s, I got us on TV in an infomercial business that linked up with our direct mail and our online business that was somewhere between a 200 and 250 million dollar franchise. Wow. Out of nothing. So if he hadn't given me all that training and all that ability to be an entrepreneur, I wouldn't have had that spirit to go out and take the risk to go on, do infomercials, to then bring the infomercial back to direct mail, to bring it back to online display advertising. And all of that, you know, led to selling, you know, tens of millions of books on TV and direct mail and online, all working in concert in a synchronized way. So that second rainmaker, you know, being open-minded that there might be someone that you can train that can be your second because then you don't have to think of all the ideas and Mm. then you can be the editor and not just the author all the time. I think it's so essential, so simple, yet I think it's one of the hardest things. It is hard because you, again, you started the party, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. why would I listen to anybody else, right? It's a lot of trust. I get it. Like, you really, I mean, like, when you, not only because you start it, but like, there is a lot of ownership and personal identity attached to it. Totally. And now you have to hand it over to someone else with the acceptance, just like how you said yourself, you had a lot, you had to go through a lot of failures and mistakes. The business owner has to let everything that they're doing kind of dip a bit. They got to let them make those mistakes. You got to let them fail. And that, man, that has been 
so hard. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard, you know, and, and I don't think, I think Marty in my situation held on a lot tighter, a lot longer, but I think that made me better. Hmm. It was frustrating at times, I have to admit. Sure, sure. But you're also in there for the long haul. I mean, that's... I was definitely playing a long game with him, for sure. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, um, that's my expression about your mentors choose you, you don't choose your mentors. Yeah, speak to that for a moment. Yeah, and I, and I, I mentioned this to Stu, our buddy Stu McLaren once, because he did a post about this, and I chimed in with my blog about it. And I did a video. I did a short five-minute video on this. And the short version is that you know, you don't, I mean, how many times do you probably get an email, you know, a week, a few a week from someone, hey, James, will you be my mentor? Yeah. And yeah. Or just, you can know, I pick your goes, brain? Yeah. Yeah. Can I pick your brain, which means I'm going to pick your pocket, right? <laughs> yep. And that's not how it works. That's mm-hmm. not how it works. And it's not that we're bad guys. And it's not like I wouldn't make time for people. But the example I give in, in the video I talked about was that something, well, first of all, let me tell you what I did. So there were people that I identified early on in my career that I said, wow, if that person was my mentor, my career would like catapult, right? But it wasn't going to be like, I'm not going to go to them and say, will you be my mentor? So one person in particular was a guy by the name of Eugene Schwartz, who wrote a book called Breakthrough Advertising, one of the most important books ever written in marketing, creative, human behavior. I've just republished it, by the way. It's really one of the classic books. Wait, what do you mean you've just republished it? Well, this goes full circle because Gene, when he passed away, because he was my mentor and my friend, you know, and there was so much demand for his work that I made the deal with his wife to get the exclusive rights to the book. You're kidding, because you know this book is like impossible to find. It's like $400 a copy. I got it. Oh, I've been promoting it, so... And I'm also going to promote another book that he has that's 4000 bucks on Amazon, used copies, called The Brilliance Breakthrough. And I'm going to have hard copies of that with a workbook as of next week. Oh, my goodness. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. But the Gene Schwartz story, that's where that's the ending. Here's the beginning. Mm-hmm. Gene Schwartz was a friend of Marty's. He was writing copy for my company. He was a copywriter. I learned a bit. You know, I was in meetings with him. And, you know, we were friendly. You know, I didn't say, can you be my mentor? But then I saw he had his own business. He had this business called Instant Improvement, which was a health book publisher. And I got to tell you, I mean, the list that he was mailing in direct mail, he didn't know what he was doing. He had a terrible list broker who didn't know what they were doing. And at Boardroom, my expertise, my first 10 years, I was the list manager. I was the list expert. Like I became an expert in audience and list. That's how I started in the business. And so I knew every good health list on the market because Boardroom also published health books and newsletters. And I went to Gene one day, volunteered it and said, Gene, I got to tell you, you know, I know the list you're mailing for your business. I think I can help you. Let's talk about all the lists I mail and let me give you a better list broker to work with and let me help you. You know, I didn't ask for anything. I just helped him. And this is Stu's thing about interning, but it's bigger than that as well. Yeah. And so one thing led to another and, you know, I really helped him a lot with his business. And, you know, one thing led to another and Gene was inviting me to his house for lunch for lessons in copywriting. And not that I became a good copywriter, but just lessons in life and the things I learned from Gene Schwartz were so I, I consider him a mentor, but he chose me. I didn't choose. I chose him because I wanted I kind of identified him, but he had to choose me. 
And so all of this came full circle, obviously, with the relationship I had. And now I'm publishing his books, right? That's so cool. But it goes full circle into my list. Like I put out one of the great copywriters ever, Jim Rutz, passed, when he passed away, I wrote a tribute to him as one of my blog posts. And then in the PS, I said something like, you know, Jim's sister is giving me all of Jim's swipe files, you know, everything that he wrote. And I'd like to create a product someday as a legacy product to Jim, uh, you know, because he was such an amazing writer and would be something generations of copywriters can have. And I'll just need some help at some point because I don't know when I'll get the time to do it. Don't you know that three copywriters Mm. on my list sent me an email to that blog post and said, I'd like to volunteer to work on the Jim Rutz project. Wow. And so fast forward a year and a half. In fact, I have a meeting this Thursday where we've just digitized all of Jim Rutz's packages and we're going to start creating and categorizing a product that we're going to sell. And I've got these three copywriters. They haven't taken a dime. I don't care about the money on this one. It's a labor of love for me. And if we sell, you know, $100,000 worth of product down the road and each of those copywriters can make 30,000 bucks, cool, right? Yeah. And do you think that they didn't ask me to be their mentor? Do you think that those three guys are going to be on my radar for the rest of their careers? And I'm going to help them whenever they need me. They are going to be that they're going to call me a mentor, which I'll be embarrassed about, but I'll feel good about. (laughs) Well, that's what I was going to say is like, isn't that awesome? Now you're talking from being mentored to now, like you have people that you're approaching. You know, when you get to the, there's a great chart that my friend Jeff Spector put together. He's a coach for athletes. He actually coached Lance Armstrong in his prime Mm. in the good days. And, uh, (laughs) but also other people too. And Jeff's got this whole thing. It's called the uh, decade dilemma. And in each decade, you know, where you move your, you know, you're more in acquisition mode, for instance, in your 20s and 30s, but mentorship mode and contribution mode show up when you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s. Now, the fact is, I think I was in contribution mode when I was in my 30s as well. Not to the same degree, maybe, but I was. So now it's really easy to be in contribution and mentorship mode if people want me for that. And that's where my, you know, that's where my next career came from. You've definitely been contributing a lot just on the time we've had today. Oh, thank you, James. Thank you. And one thing I just got to point out, which I love is, I think one thing that is clear for both of us is just how essential direct response is in the growth of our business. But you pointed out a few times, you're not really a copywriter. So that means you just are able to attract the right people to write. Cause I know there's a lot of listeners who are probably like, I hate writing. I don't want to do copy, but it doesn't have to be you writing the copy, but you still need to know what to look for and what the strategy, what the metrics yeah, I've are. I've written on this a lot. So hopefully we'll give people an opportunity if they want to, you know, tap into my, you know, blog posts and cause I write about this all the time. I have a blog post that's like, you don't know, you may not know it when you see it. And it's sort of like the attributes of every great copywriter I ever hired. Wow. There's stuff about, you know, I have one called Confessions of a Copywriter Wannabe. (laughs) And it's all about that you actually are your best copywriter, even if you don't even write a word of copy. Like if you're selling your stuff, James, and you don't want to write the copy, having a great copywriter who knows what they're doing interview you, ask the right questions, transcribe it. I will guarantee you that the best copy that gets written 
is stuff that's going to come out of your mouth. Yep. You know, that's funny you say that because our best copywriter, we actually have a great system that we deployed where we have four or five copywriters on standby. And depending on what the actual project is, would determine which copywriter is being used. Makes sense. And so our number one copywriter who does like our sales pages for our big products and stuff, that's all she does. She gets on the phone with me for an hour at a time and she just interviews me. And then I see... My That's a sign of a great copy. Oh, she's so good. I am blown away. And I don't, <laughs> maybe I'll do another episode where I like share her, but I've shared her with my mastermind and like booked. Like she is now, like I kind of shot myself in the foot. Like, guys, you got to meet my copywriter. And now uh, she's right. like, I don't even, she's like, oh, I'm working with so-and-so. I'm like, That's someone I gave you, darn it. No. So yeah, I'm a little, yeah, resistant to share it with with the world. Yeah, it's an interesting thing about, you know, protecting them and all that. I mean, I've been through all of that, you know, with some of the best copywriters. But, you know, sharing the wealth always usually pays out in the long run. It does. It does. And it's nice that her calendar is always is always filled and it also brings up another point which i'm sure you can speak to i, I want to be mindful of your time so we'll wrap it up soon but i've seen just how essential it is how important it is to just be able to find and identify and attract the right people yeah and, and copywriters just no exception yeah um, i think people leave you know such an important part of their business to amateurs and it's it's really sad you know even though i talk in one of my blogs about what i call the 40 40 20 rule of direct marketing which is the success of a direct marketing campaign, you know, depends 40% on the list, 40% on the offer and 20% on the creative. It makes it sound like the creative is half as important, Mm -hmm. but it's not. I mean, what that is saying is, and you can really address, you can definitely relate to this, that you could go out to that great copywriter, write the killer copy of all time. If you've got a terrible offer and the wrong audience, you're going to make zero sales. On the other side, if you have an affiliate who's got an audience that loves anything that you do and you offer just anything to them with mediocre copy, you'll make some money. Now, put those three things together, and even though I said creative is 20, if you've got the list and the offer you know, cooking in the right place, now you go out and hire the best copywriter you can find now you're cooking in all summer, home run. right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a home run. I love it. Brian, this has been amazing. And I'm just so grateful. Like all of your collected wisdom, all your experience, there's so many other avenues we could have gone down and there's so much more. I'm lucky. I know you in person, so I, I get oh, to continue. I, I feel the same way. We haven't spent a lot of time together in our mastermind group. And one of the reasons actually selfish reasons when I heard about you from Stu McLaren and then, I heard you share some stuff at the group and then our mutual friend Jason Friedman told me about this podcast. I said, yeah, maybe if I do his podcast, I'll, he'll get to know me a little better. I'll get to know him a little better. And we, you know, cause you know, we're, we're going to be, we're going to be in that group for a long time and we'll be lifelong friends. Yeah. So it was important. You know, I don't get a chance to share a lot of this stuff. And the fact that you have a podcast is awesome. And what you're doing for your tribe is just wonderful so thank you to be able to contribute to that means an awful lot to me you are contributing so i I really appreciate it let me ask you is there either anything else you feel like you want to share in order to call this episode complete or maybe even to make that more specific like any other pearls of wisdom for someone out there that's really just Mm -hmm. getting started and they are just like 
so discouraged, so overwhelmed, so stuck. I mean, when a lot of people find this podcast, that's usually where they're at is burnt out and ready to give up. Because okay, been so working. I'll give you two really good quotes. Yeah, that I think is great for the startup frustrated entrepreneur. The first one is from one of my mentors, Adolf Auerbacher, who built a big magazine division at Meredith Publishing, which is Better Homes and Gardens magazine, Ladies Home Journal, mm. major guy in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I met him when he became a consultant for me. And his quote is, follow the anecdotal evidence. And what that means is you don't have to invent everything. You do have to go back to your point about you do have to become proficient in something. You do have to get into the mastery thing, but you don't have to invent it. See what's out there. This is what Breakthrough Advertising, Gene Schwartz's book, is about. You know, it's like you don't create mass desire. The desire is already out there. You just have to tap into it. And to do that, you got to follow the anecdotal evidence. Like what's happening in the marketplace? Like what? Like I knew, like it's a simple one, but I followed the anecdotal evidence to get on TV with an infomercial because I saw someone else selling a health book on TV that wasn't as good as my health book. I mean, that's a simple one, but, yeah. you know, that led to $300 million or $250 million because basically all I did was follow the anecdotal evidence that said, I can sell a better health book than they could with better creative and better list select, better, I can do everything they can do with a better product. But the anecdotal evidence was he's on a lot, this guy. So therefore, health books are selling on TV. That's a simple example, but you get what I mean. Totally. So follow the anecdotal evidence. Very, very important. The other quote I would give you is from Gordon Grossman, another mentor of mine. Gordon Grossman was one of the architects of Reader's Digest in the 60s. He kind of invented the sweepstakes. I mean, you know, Groupon owes him a debt of gratitude. And <laughs> believe me. So Gordon has a quote that stays with me and I use it all the time in my consulting practice. The quote is, first, it's on my wall right here. I'm looking at it right now. First, find out if you have a business. First, find out if you have a business. That sounds kind of silly, right? What it means is when you're starting with a, a new product or something new, don't over-test. Now, I, I believe in testing. I believe in testing different offers, testing different creative, testing different lists, all of that stuff. However, you want to, on that first thing, test the minimum you need to test to make sure you've got a business or you don't have a business. Yeah. And so don't overtest, I guess, is kind of the corollary to first find out if you have a business. So, for example, you know, I was talking to a client yesterday and we were looking at, you know, should we test thirty nine ninety nine versus lifetime offer? Should we do this? We do that. I said, no, let's find out if we have a business in direct mail first for your magazine. So let's test the best offer that we know that's worked for other magazines like you. And if that works, then we can expand on to the next. It sounds really simple and stupid, but how many people do we know that when they get frustrated with their new idea, they start looking at all the shiny objects that are possible and they test too much or they try to do too much with that first test because everything's a pilot at that point, right? You're piloting everything and you want to make sure that you have a business first before you go. And so it's a gradual step by step and it's not you know get rich quick and that goes back to playing the long game but i think the follow the anecdotal evidence combined with first find out if you have a business and then i guess the third quote which is also on my wall here is from dick benson who was the smartest guy ever in direct mail 
And he said, you have to believe your numbers. So mm. that goes back to direct marketing. Yeah. So follow the anecdotal evidence. First, find out if you have a business, make sure you test tightly and properly. And then you got to believe your numbers. So the numbers don't lie. So if you set up the test properly and it was tight enough, you'll also know whether you're in business or not based on what the numbers tell you. And that's direct marketing metrics. And that's really important. I love it. Fantastic. Brian, this has been amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, gosh, you've just been so giving with your time and your wisdom. So truly appreciate it. Really quick. You've mentioned some books. You've mentioned the first book you wrote, and then you have one coming out. Can you mention those again? We'll make sure that all that information is linked up. Yeah, I think people on this podcast should definitely buy my book that's already out. I don't make any money on it. So this is not like a, you know, it's, it, I'm being totally transparent here. It's like it's 12 bucks on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And then again, because of contribution and over delivery, as I like to call it, don't buy the book directly on Amazon. Buy it at a site that I set up at thelegendsbook.com, T-H-E-L-E-G-N-D-S book.com. And at that site, you go there and there's actually a button and you can buy the book at, you know, Indie Books, Amazon or Barnes and Noble. You buy the book, you come back, you give your receipt of the book, you go to this email address and you get to download these incredible swipe files and classic ads from the six legends that I profile in my book. Wow. My, I wrote the book with Craig Simpson, who's a direct mail expert. And it's not just about direct mail. It's about these six legends I said before, who were the direct marketers trapped in advertisers' bodies. The book's called The Advertising Solution. But if you go to thelegendsbook.com, you'll get these swipe files for free of the best ads the six legends wrote in their career. There's also access to videos of three of them. In fact, there's one of David Ogilvy, the great advertising man on the David Letterman show. There's a video of Gary Halbert and Gene Schwartz. And there's also a downloadable PDF of that book I mentioned, Scientific Advertising from 1923, which is one of the books we talk about in my book. But then there's also a downloaded PDF of an illustrated and annotated version of that classic book. That's all free. That's all free at thelegendsbook.com. And we'll make sure to link that up for you guys as well in the show notes. Yeah, and that's where you can opt into my list too. There is an opt-in. And I encourage you to opt into my list because, you know, at thelegendsbook.com, you know, to go to my list and then I blog every Sunday, you'll hear about, you know, you'll get a series of blogs that I'll send you right away, which is, you know, your mentors choose you, you don't choose your mentors and you may not know it when you see it and copywriting and all that kind of stuff. And if anybody has no interest at all in paying 12 bucks for the book that I don't make any money on and they just want to opt into my list, Hmm. they can go to briankurtz.me, B-R-I-A-N-K-U-R-T-Z.me, and you can just get a free another interview like this one. I'm sure I talk about some of the same things we talked about today, but you can opt in and there's a lot of free content at briankurtz.me and you save 12 bucks that way, but I don't know why you would do that because of all the stuff I'm giving you for free. And then the last thing I guess I'll mention, Breakthrough Advertising, you know, that's not free. You know, that book I do have, I'm paying a royalty into Gene Schwartz's estate for that. As I said, I did it as a project with Gene's wife, Barbara, who's 83 years old. Gene's been, has passed away many years ago. And if people go to BreakthroughAdvertisingBook.com, BreakthroughAdvertisingBook.com, they can buy the book. It's $125. If you go on Amazon, used copies are four or 500 bucks. 
And I'll be coming out with a book called The Brilliance Breakthrough soon. And that book will come with a workbook. That was another book Gene Schwartz wrote. There's no site up yet for that. But that'll be a, an incredible book for anybody who wants to kind of learn how to write the way Gene taught people to write. Yeah. In fact, the subtitle of that book is, have it in front of me here. This book, by the way, if you go on Amazon, you'll see it. I think the cheapest copy is $4,000. Jeez. Um, so it's called The Brilliance Breakthrough, How to Talk and Write So That People Will Never Forget You. That book I'll be selling with a workbook for $195. And if you're on my list, you'll hear about it. So hopefully people who are listening will opt into my list. And I don't sell a lot of stuff to my list except stuff like that, educational materials. And I don't do affiliate deals. So mm -hmm. you won't be getting bombarded with any other offers. Well, Brian, this has been fantastic. Again, you guys, all of our listeners, we're going to link up everything that Brian mentioned. He even threw in a couple other books that have had an impact on him. We'll make sure all of that gets that's linked up. So Brian, thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you to our listeners for hanging out again. And we'll see all of you on the next episode. Take care. Are you a coach, course creator, or online influencer looking for an easier way to expand your reach, help more people, and get paid while you do it? I've built a multiple seven-figure business around my content, courses, memberships, and mastermind. And I'm going to give you the exact processes that show you how I did it. So if you currently feel stuck, stagnant, overwhelmed, or coursed the F out, this is the training that's going to graduate you from student mode into action mode. To join the party absolutely free, simply visit www.jameswedmore.com forward slash go.